everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Recorded live. Uh, Dr. Talagbe, I, I say your name right. Was it Talagbe? Excuse me? So what's your name? How you say your name? Talagbe Ogunleye. Talagbe. Mm-hmm. Okay, we all be on the head on Dr. Talagbe, uh, who has a special project, a passion project that concerns the, the Gullah Geechee Wars. And uh, we'd like to have her talk about this hidden history, this uh forgotten or hidden chapter of American history that concerns the liberation of black folks, uh, African people. How are you doing today, man? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. I can't complain. So yeah, tell a little bit about your uh, your story that you have, this very important story that we need to hear as black people. Uh, yes. I, I wrote a screenplay on the Gullah Geechee Wars uh, that occurred um, during the... 19th century, but actually I also included the Yamasee War that occurred uh, in the 18th century. So actually my screenplay goes from the uh, the, um, 18th century into the early part of the 19th century, dealing with the war that was fought by the Yamasee and Gullah Geechee people living along the Sea Islands in South Carolina and Georgia. And then I go into the... um, Gullah-Geechee War that was fought in uh, Florida uh, during the 19th century. Some people call it the Seminole War, and I'm dealing with the first Seminole War, but actually it was a war that was fought between the Gullah-Geechee people and other um, autochthonous people uh, living in Florida against the United States government. All right. So why do you think it's important that people know about these, these stories or these events today? Uh, I think it's important for people to know about this particular aspect of uh, our history because, um, unfortunately, the current uh, um, uh, types of uh, movies that are available to us deal mostly with our enslavement and the most uh, grimmest aspects of our enslavement, enslavement, excuse me. They don't deal with us as being um, people who won. Uh, we're just seen as being docile individuals who never fought back, never just, um, or for the most part, were complacent with our uh, existence and didn't even try and run away and um, determine 
uh, to be free. Uh, you take most of the movies uh, that you uh, that have been uh, offered to us in terms of uh, what you see um, in the movies. You have Twelve Years a Slave, Roots, uh, and you could go on and on with all the types of movies that um, that basically are, are available to us in um, in the movies as well as on TV, and they all deal with us um, in 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 the saddest uh, state of affairs, and I thought it was time for that to stop. And so about um, uh, almost a year ago, I started writing my screenplay uh, because I wanted people to see brave, courageous men and women who fought back and won, not just fighting back, but also winning. And I thought that that was very, very important. And also to show that they're them prospering because not only do I deal with the wars, that were fought by uh, the Gullah Geechee people. I deal with the settlements that they established throughout Florida, as well as in Georgia, and I show how prosperous those settlements actually were. Uh, as a matter of fact, the people were so um, uh, prosperous uh, in terms of their um, ability to farm and to raise animals and um, like um, cattle and chickens, and then they have um, uh, horses, uh, raise horses, until people from all over uh, the United States, as well as parts of the Caribbean, came to do business with them because they realized that they had the best product. And so people wanted to come and do business with them. So they sold their agricultural products. They sold their, the, the animals that they raised. Uh, they um, were involved in naval stores, so the wood, uh, they would uh, come and get the wood uh, that the um, uh, men had, um, uh, what would you call that? Um, you know, they cut down the trees and then they stored them and made the wood um, um, in such a way that it, uh, it could be used to, to build with. And so they would come there and they would get all of these products from these people. Not to mention, um, these were not dumb people. And although we see, when we see again, when we see slave movies, they always show these people that uh, are, are unable to speak um, any language properly. Um, they're confused. You know, they're just not very smart, supposedly. But these were extremely smart people. Uh, they spoke numerous European languages as well as um, numerous um Autochthonous people's languages, because they were actually uh, their languages, to the extent that people would come and get them to act as translators for them. As a matter of fact, they were considered to be sense carriers because not only did they speak the language, they knew the nuances of the languages. And so, you know, that expression about being able to take sense out of nonsense, they were right. able to do that, especially for like... Um, some of the Native American people who were not familiar with dealing with European people. Uh, and so in their interactions with them, they wanted the Gullah Geechee people around them so that they could make sense of the, uh, what Europeans were really saying to them. So uh, they were needed in all sorts of, uh, of um, areas of uh, dealing with European people. Some of it because they had lived amongst uh, European people, some of them, had lived amongst European people, and so they, they knew uh, a great deal about them, or it's something that they learned, because something else that, uh, that happened with these people, 
uh, once they escaped or when they began to live autonomously, their children had to go to school. So they had to learn the languages, they had to learn math, they had to learn how to write. So they le- they were also very familiar with ideographic um, uh, scripts as well as object scripts, and they used them, you know, in their daily dealings uh, with uh, other autochthonous people living uh, throughout Florida and other parts of um, of the Americas, and um, also in just uh, uh, teaching the history. Uh, of the, uh, uh, their settlements to the people who were living there. So these were very, very intelligent people, and that's something else you don't see much in movies. You know, we're always seen as these dumb people who are uh, relying on others because we're just incapable of doing too much of anything for ourselves. But these were people who uh, were living autonomously, and they didn't need the help of anybody. If they had help, they had help from other autochthonous people living in the Bahamas and Cuba and Jamaica and other parts of um, of this hemisphere. I'm glad you shared that with us uh, concerning the actual lives, the day-to-day lives of our people back then. Um, do you think that people would be more receptive of movies dealing with that era if uh, people do the truth about the traditions of the people back then, like how they, you know, their day-to-day and how they interacted with each other, how they saw themselves? despite of the traditions, you think people will be less against so-called slave movies if they knew the truth about the uh, actual oh, history? Absolutely, because they're, they're the model for us. These are people who got along with one another. Um, they had a, um, um, uh, what word am I trying to use? They had a code, mm-hmm. and they all, you know, they, they followed that particular code, so they were protective of one another. They weren't trying to lie and cheat and steal from one another. They used the skills that they had to help everybody who was living amongst them. And not only that, they willingly took in um, people who uh, had just newly fled from their enslavers. They were welcomed into their settlements. And actually, uh, the men were known to go back to um, uh, the northern part of the United States and uh, bring women back uh, to the settlements. And, you know, um, they became, you might say they were, they were something like um, um, male-order brides, you might say, but they brought women back into the settlement and cared for them, you know, and made them become part of the family. So, you know, they were just creating uh, an environment that was uh, conducive to thriving, and that was very important. They weren't just just uh, getting along. They weren't just living hand to mouth. They were thriving. As a matter of fact, uh, people knew that the settlements were so prosperous. So you had people as far away as um, the New England states getting in boats or or walking, trying to make their way to Florida to live amongst these people. And, you know, when you you hear about these people, they just try and make you believe that it was just a couple hundred black people who were living autonomously, uh, in Florida, and that was not the case at all. We're talking about their settlements dotted the whole entire uh, state, or what we now call the state of Florida. So you have places like Gullah Town, uh, Mulatto uh, Women's Town, you had Tender Town, you had Watermelon Town, you had all of the, you know, and that's just the, the name of a few, you know, uh, settlements that existed, but they were all over. And like Tender Town, for, uh, for example, uh, that's where um, 
you had uh, uh, peanuts growing. They were known for peanuts, and that's why they named their town Pender. So if you wanted to go and be good uh, 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 peanuts, that was the place to go. You know, like my mother, she likes uh, peanuts that are boiled. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I always thought they were not very good. I don't know how you feel about boiled peanuts. But you could, you know, go there and get your peanuts, and they would boil them for you, or you knew how to take them back and boil them, boil them yourself, or you roasted them. You know, and all the other dishes that we've created would have peanuts in them, like the peanut stews and so forth. So that's why the town got uh, its name is Tinder. Same thing with Watermelon Town. Of course, they were known for watermelons. So if you wanted to go there to get a good watermelon, that was a place to go because that's what they were noted for. And so you find that occurring all throughout Florida. And, you know, unfortunately, they don't talk about that. As a matter of fact, the only thing they do talk about was this rundown settlement uh, that um, revisionist historians and white supremacists are still trying to um, make people believe was a place where uh, people fled from um, the, the North and came there and lived free, and that's Gracia Real de Santa Fe de Mosaic. And supposedly that was a place where um, uh, people came and lived free and did well and so forth, but they know they're lying because it was just this dilapidated old town with a rickety um, a couple of buildings, and it was put there to act as a buffer between uh, the uh, people or the Spaniards living in St. Augustine and uh, Pensacola, the two major uh, cities in, in Florida during that particular time, and the people or the uh, Europeans um, at the time was primarily the British that were living in uh, what became known as uh, Georgia as well as South Carolina, Alabama, and so forth. And so that was their duty to act as a buffer to keep, to, it was like an early warning post to let the people know or let the Spaniards know that the British were coming. And it was their job to fight against um, the British and handle the situation um, long before they were able to get into uh, Spain or Augustine or Pensacola. And in addition to that, the men were not allowed to, the women were not allowed to live with the men. So the husbands stayed in um, the, the, the rundown settlement of Mose, and the women were forced to uh, uh, stay in Pensacola in Florida and act as uh, domestics in the homes and of the um, Spaniards living there. And they were basically taken uh, advantage of the additional working. They were raped. Uh, mm. They were beaten. The children were raped and beaten as well. But still, to this day, if you take a trip to Florida, that's one of the, uh, the um, main sites that you're supposed to go and see. They want you to go and see Mosaic. And, of course, they you know try and make it look like these were people who live very well. So they have these costumes. They, they've made up these costumes for these people uh, that supposedly show them as these well-fed, uh, well-cared-for um, nicely dressed individuals, and that was not the case at all. Oh, wow. Why are they so invested in telling the lie? I mean, this system is. Uh, I think they're invested in telling the lie because it's, it's done to keep us in our place. Um, you're made to believe that your, your ancestors were nothing, so how could you be much of anything? And unfortunately, a lot of us, we've, we've, um, we believe the hype. And so we believe that we haven't done anything and lamentably will probably never, ever be able to accomplish anything. 
So it, it serves their interest to keep the lie going. It keeps them supposedly in power. But we know that that's changing. You know, there's been a dramatic um, paradigm shift, and uh, people's eyes are opening up, and they're doing whatever they want that they think is going to help us or help them to stay in charge, you know. So you have the, the dirty water and the dirty air we breathe and the uh, food filled with GMOs and all that stuff, you know. And then the schools are not educating the kids properly. And so, you know, if you don't know any better, how could you do any better, unfortunately? So I want to understand you. Like, what motivates you to learn this history and try to tell the story to the rest of the world? I mean, I'm, I'm just curious about your background. And your motivation? Well, um, although I was born and raised in New York, um, I was uh, um, reared by uh, parents from South Carolina and Georgia. My father, his people uh, were from uh, the Sea Islands, Buford, South Carolina, and then they went out to other places of, uh, of uh, South Carolina. My mother's from Georgia. And um, I don't know, just something in me, this, this uh, information just uh, really intrigued me, especially when I think of what my uh, father went through uh, when uh, he was growing up. He went, when he left South Carolina, he left never ever to really want to return to that area. The only thing that he would do, he would go back to South Carolina if someone was dying and he wanted to see them before they died or he would go back for the funeral. But other than that, he really didn't want to have anything to do with that uh, particular area because of the way that uh, he was raised. And then as I got older, he never really talked about that. I I guess he really didn't want to um, um, subject us to those images and maybe cloud our perception about life. But as he got older, he began to talk about that. And um, I really, I found out that uh, one of my um, uh, cousins, um, I guess my um, third cousin, fourth cousin, was lynched uh, in Columbia, Mm. Georgia. And, you know, can you imagine holding on to all this information, knowing uh, what you had to deal with, you Mm. know, uh, growing up or hearing the the information as you're growing up. And so I always wanted to try and um, make things better, give the family something to feel proud about, you know, uh, because even my perception about being in the South was tainted by just, you know, my father and my mother's uh, ideas of what this, the South was like. So I wanted to uncover some of the good aspects of, of that particular uh, uh, part of, of this country. And just to find out about people who fought back, um, it's amazing, you know, to me, you know, or it was amazing to me at the time because I had never heard about that. I never learned anything about that in school. So to hear my father talk about these people, or not my father, or, or to my father talking about the people being one way and then um, going or beginning to do my research when I was working on my doctorate at Temple University in Philadelphia and then hearing something completely different, it just opened my eyes up to something uh, that was completely uh, new for me, you know, and it changed my whole perception about what I was going to school for and what aspect of um, of uh, African-American studies that I wanted to deal with. So uh, my major uh, became African resistance to enslavement 
or my my major, of course, was African American studies, but then my specialization was African resistance to enslavement, and I dealt uh, particularly with uh, the people um, known as the Seminoles, who we now know were the Gullah Geechee people who fought and won against the United States government. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'm really fascinated by all this, especially that last part. That, I mean, why do you think people want to uh, make Africans or black people Indians? What's that phenomenon? If, if they were indeed not Seminoles but Gullah Geechee, why, why would people want, do not want to know us to know that? Because they didn't want people to know that there were black people fighting uh, as people that we now call black people, but they're really melanated people. You can even refer mm-hmm. to them as being white people. If you listen to people such as Taj, uh, Tariq Bay and uh, see the Duke of Tears and so forth and so on. Uh, they didn't want anyone to know that there were people that were fighting against this government and winning. So as opposed to telling the people who they really were, they decided that they would call them Indians and they would call them Seminoles. But they knew Seminole was a derogatory term. Some people say that it isn't, but uh, if you look at a lot of the dictionaries, it says a domesticated cow who escapes to a wild existence. That's the meaning of the word mm. Seminole. You know, and you can go the same thing with uh, maroon, another uh, negative word, really saying the same exact thing. Someone who lived in a, um, in a, uh, in a, uh, a, a civilized area and then runs off and lives in the wild. You know, so they didn't want them to know. So every time, um, well, they kept that information away from people as much as they could, but if you happen by chance to uh, get get a hold of a newspaper, you would see the word Seminole, you see the word Indian, and then you would say, oh, that doesn't have anything to do with me. Because again, again, of course, the people were even told that they were not the indigenous or the autochthonous people of this land. So, you know, if you've been told that you're a Negro, black, you're colored, when you hear people talking about the Indians or you hear them talking about the Seminoles, you say, well, that doesn't concern me because that's not me. But we found out recently that, you know, it did concern us and they were our people. And even if they were talking about so-called Indians, they were still our people, you know. And you, if you talk to um, most of the people, uh, the melanated people in this country, they'll always tell you about uh, the um, indigenous people in uh, you know the word uh, that uh, they're a member of uh, you know they'll say that they're Cherokee or they're Blackfoot or Tuscarora and we could go on and on all the names of the uh, various indigenous people of this land you know so we always knew that it was there but we didn't have uh, um, all of the information that's being uncovered uh, to this day. Like, I recently found out that my people are uh, Yamasi. Uh, my, I would hear relatives, like my aunts, my great aunts, and so forth, talking about us being Cherokee. But then after hearing um, um, a Yamasi man by the name of uh, B, um, uh, Hidden Eagle is his name, and then he was talking about some people to try and... Um, um, get some of the advantages of being Cherokee, for example, instead of saying that they were Cherokee, I mean, Yamasi, they said that they were uh, Cherokee, but knowing full well that they were uh, 
there were Yamasi. And it was funny because I was listening to him on the radio show, and he was talking about the people who referred to themselves as Wright and Robinson and Roundtree, and he was just naming them off. He said, these were Yamasi people. And I said, wow, I had to even uh, uh, email him or do Twitter uh although he didn't respond, but I said, wow. I said, you're talking about my people. I said, my maiden name is Wright, and my uh, people are the, the uh, round trees and the Robinsons and, of course, the Wrights. I said, I never knew that before until we broke it down. You know, so we're learning a lot about uh, who we are now, and we didn't have that information before. So when we heard about the Indians fighting against the United States, of, of, uh, 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 United States, we never thought of that as being anything that concerned us. You know, if you ask the enslavers about it during that particular time, it's all it's just those Indians, you know. So we never really, some of us didn't want to investigate, but there were always some amongst us who were doing the investigating, you know, because there's always people, you know, that, uh, or throughout our whole history, there have always been people who knew, no, this is not right, but they're trying to tell me that's not right. You know, and that's I guess what why we're here today. You have like a a Martin Delaney, uh, uh, Denmark Vesey, Matt Turner, Gabriel Prosser. These people who weren't drinking the Kool Aid, you know, and they wanted to know something else, you know, and so they did. I know David Walter said that uh, right before they uh, they uh, killed him, you know, he said that he prayed that God would raise um, uh, a group of historians amongst his people, meaning us, who would uh, come back or who would begin to tell the history as it really needed to be told. So I think I'm one of those people that uh, David Walker prayed for uh, to come that would tell the history the way the history really needed it to be told. And there are many, you know, more people that are just not buying the Kool-Aid. They're coming out of school and they're saying, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. You know, let me do a little bit of investigation, investigating on my own. And that's exactly what you have. You know, so uh, we're beginning to open our eyes and know that we are the people, uh, the Bella Geechee people. And I think it is helping uh, many of us to be proud. Of course, there are some people who are still asleep. And they really, you know, they don't have a clue. And they're pretty satisfied with their status. And they're not trying uh, to get any more information. And that is what it is, you know. But there are many more amongst us who are really trying to find out the truth about our existence in this part of the world. Well, that's excellent. Uh, I definitely am glad that the technology that we have now, I can only imagine what David Walker would have done today in terms of spreading the message before he was spreading back then. And uh, it's interesting to note that all the people that you named were very articulate and literate, that they were very well educated, even though they didn't go to any so-called formal schools per se. Right, you're absolutely right. And, you know, if you think about it, and I would tell my students this all the time, that at one point, the way that um, uh, people were selling drugs on the corner, mm-hmm. at one point, that, they were selling books on the corner. You know, it was mm-hmm. all done in secrecy. You wait till there were no European people around and say, hey, I got that book, you know, and people mm-hmm. would buy the book. They would hide them. Just like David Walker, he was hiding the book. You know, he was um, um, sending his... Um, his uh, uh, copies of his plays back down south, and they were reading them in church. So when you know, I guess that's why white people decided, or they're not white, uh, the European uh, Europeans decided that mm-hmm. they would have uh, 
some Europeans sit in the church doing their uh, services to make sure that they were really uh, talking about what they wanted them to talk about. But that was the place at one point where you went to get uh, information about what was going on around you. You know, and so, yeah, there were literate people. You know, there were always literate people. Uh, they were hoping, you know, that uh, there weren't many among us who were able to read and write, but they, they've always been there. And that's how the, the information has just uh, continued to, to, you know, uh, be told to us, by us. And also I noticed that every period of our existence here that we do, speaking of being literate, that we had a fascination with uh, the media. Like we always knew the value of telling our own stories, whether it be Frederick Douglass with the North Star or the uh, African Freedom Journal. Or even now in Memphis, where I'm just, you know, got to, uh, we just got to observing the uh, 125th anniversary of the lynching at the curve. These are Ida B. Wells' friends or successful black businessmen who got lynched 125 years ago yesterday. And she had her own newspaper that she owned that she launched uh, a career of anti-lynching against. Uh, what is you, your opinion of the state of black media today, though? I mean, you look at every time period we had, we knew the importance of media, whether it be Malcolm X, started Muhammad Speaks, or Marcus Garvey with his paper, The Negro World. Where do we stand today as black folks in the media? I think it still continues. Look at your show. We all be TV. You know, okay. uh, we're not reading um, uh, the print copy so much, but, you know, now we have the Internet. And so we have your shows, many other shows, and that's where people are going to get the information. So I don't think it's uh, died down at all. The form has changed a little bit, but it's definitely still here. What would we do without your program? You know, how will we get the information? There are a lot of people, they don't know about Ida B. Wells and, you know, her impetus for uh, uh, creating her newspaper or her friends, like we were talking about, you know, um, um, a couple days ago when Mm -hmm. uh, they were getting ready uh, to lynch the young man, and I'm horrible with names. And he's, uh, you know, they asked him, did he want to say anything before he died? Right. And he said, yeah, go west. You know, right. you don't have to deal with yeah. foolishness. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so um, um, it, it continues on, you know, and because of the success that you're having, there will be other people that will stand up and they'll begin to say, I can do that. Let me start um, my own um, uh, program. Because we know that what we're getting on CNN and MSNBC and Fox and all those other um, racist uh, channels, that's not, the, that's not the truth. And so we know, we've always known that we need our own. And, you know, when you're meeting that, uh, that uh, need, and there will be others that will come after you, and they will, they will help to meet uh, the needs of our community as well. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. You know, it's interesting. I'm always fascinated with the Carolinas. There's something about the Carolinas that produce uh, some, some ex- exceptional people. Like I was, when you said that, I was actually thinking about. Uh, are you familiar with uh, Lester Villeton? That's his name, I believe, out of South Carolina. Lester who? Uh, Lester Villeton, I believe. He was a, a TV program host out of, I think, Columbia, South Carolina. He had a show back in the '90s and the '80s, I believe. But he he passed away uh, some years ago. But he was a black journalist out of Carolina who was bringing in people like Dr. Francis Crest Welting to interview uh, any, any black scholar of that period you think of. He interviewed them. And uh, mm-hmm. I think it was the show called For the People. 
I mean, he's he's, he's from uh, South Carolina doing that. Mm. And on this back, like, 20-something years ago, he was doing all these exceptional shows. And um, I discovered him through, you know, Internet. You know, I didn't know about him during this time, but by Internet, some of his shows have been uploaded. And also Gil Noble, people like that. So he said, like he said, there's always going to be people around that can inspire other people. Because the point of the matter is that you got to be the change you want to see. You got to be the solution to what you want to uh, find the, the answer to. So I want to ask you this as well, because I think, I mean, you're a scholar and you do all this work about our people. So would it be correct to say that we already had African people over in America before the Europeans, or would that be incorrect? Oh, no, that would definitely be correct. Absolutely. Okay. You know, um, and you can think of the Olmecs, mm-hmm. who uh, are the parents of the Yamaxi and other uh, ontoxinous people. Um, you think about even coming from West Africa, you have a Bukhari, uh who came here to the Americas, uh, you know, and initially uh, sent a few people in um, a couple hundred ships to come and see what was going on. And when, they, when only one ship came back and the others stayed, he decided he would get uh, 2,000 ships and he would take the trip himself, you know. So we know that uh, there has been an interchange between us and Africa for quite some time. You think about the Moors, you know, who were living on on the Iberian Peninsula and who came here. And, uh, you know, we could go on and on about the people that we've come here. I know um, Dr. Ivan Van Sertime has a book uh, that came before Columbus, and he talked about different strains of uh, cotton that uh, were only found at one point in um, in Africa, were found here in the United States, and other types of uh, food stuff that uh, were indigenous to um, uh, to Africa, finding its way over here. Or you think about uh, foods that were indigenous to this particular area now being found in um, all parts of uh, of Africa. For instance, cassava. Cassava is indigenous to the um, to the Americas, but now it's something that's uh, that's eaten throughout um, uh, West Africa, and I suspect other parts of uh, of Africa as well. It's become, you know, uh, basically a delicacy. You know, mm-hmm. it's eaten in all sorts of ways, fufu and gari and so forth. And that was, uh, you know, food that that was a, a plant that was originally from. Um, from the Americas, and, and you know now it's over in that area. We can go on and on and on. Uh, even if you think of um, the, the way that um, um, or the types of gods that are revered, gods and goddesses that are revered, uh, and you look at the similarities between uh, the reverence for those particular gods and goddesses in uh, this part of the world, and you compare them back to the way that they're revered in other parts of, um, of the world, and then you can see that that interaction uh, has always uh, occurred. I know even years ago I heard about Bodum being celebrated or um, uh, 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 adhered to in this particular part of the world and thinking of it as, oh, that came out of the Haitian um, mm-hmm. um, interaction, and then finding out, no, it existed in this part of, of the world Maybe just as long, or if not longer, than it, uh, than uh, in Haiti, you know. So um, 
there's always been this interaction between um, the cultures of this part of uh, the world and uh, the other parts of the Caribbean and uh, and um, uh, Africa. You know, so and uh, you know, and of course that continues. I think about the god Ogun, mm-hmm. who um, was uh, revered by various people, not just the Yoruba people, but uh, all uh, different different um, people from different cultures. When they got ready to go to war, knowing that Ogun was the god of uh, of war as well as the god of iron. Um, when they got ready to go to uh, war, for example, they called on Ogun, no matter, you know, what their uh, particular ethnicity happened to be. But when they got ready to fight their battles, he was the one that they wanted on their side. You know, so, yeah, there's always been an interaction between us. They didn't call call Jesus, they called Ogun. (laughs) Right, that's right, absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, wow. Let me ask you this. I, well, I brought it up. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, girl, go ahead. No, I was going to say, well, you know, my name, Ogunleye, is because of the god Ogun, god of iron. Oh, yeah, you Or he who comes to make war. So that's the, you know, that's the literal translation, he who comes to make war. Oh, wow. Well, you had come to make war with this white supremacist system in terms of ideology and history. So you're doing a great job with that. Um, let me ask you this. I mean, you think... Man, because religion is such a big part of our, our daily existence as black people or has been a part of our historical narrative. If you look at people like Nat Turner and Harry Tubman, they both were ministers or preachers. Um, is is religion, our, our, our relationship with religion, is it a problem for us to, you know, when it comes to our liberation? Yeah, I, I think it is. You know, and I don't want to step on any toes because, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, most of the wars they say have been fought have been fought in the name of some some sort of religion. Right. But it, it it has been a problem for us. I think it's made us docile and complacent. And, um, you know, the way that, that it's worshipped, unfortunately, by too many of us. Um, we're worshipping somebody else's image of God, mm-hmm. and we completely left out a goddess. Like there, you know, there was no, uh, you know, it's not like a Asa, Aset, and Heru. Mm-hmm. You know, Aset is completely left out of the picture. You know, in terms of uh, the types of uh, ways that um, people worship today, and I think I, I, I really think that's uh, a problem, and I think it's too much done in that um, that building, you know, the buildings that have been uh, erected as opposed to taking the religion outside of, um, uh, you know, that, um, um, that house and bringing it to the people. I think that's what the problem is. And then snubbing uh, the people, I think that, you know, they have this the superiority conflict. So they snub their noses at other people who don't uh, believe what they believe and worship the way they worship. Mm-hmm. You know, I can remember having to go to church when I was younger and having people in the church laughing at me because they didn't like what my mother, the type of clothes my mother put on me to go to church. You know, like I really had something to do with that. But I was, you know, castigated because I didn't look a certain way. You know, so... 
it's done more to divide us than it has been to uh, bring us together. And then the message as well. And then, you know, some of the stuff that we know, you know, like the whole thing with Michelangelo and um, uh, using the images of his, his aunt and uncle and his cousin, you know, to come up with a composite for the, the holy, so-called holy family. You know, um, there's just too much. Too, we've been told too many lies, and we could go on and on. I'm not, you know, well versed in all the information there is about the history of Christianity, but it's not a good one. You know, even if you think about it, and some people might get angry to hear that, but I'm going to say it anyway. You know, even the, the places where the nuns were um, uh, were housed, you know, reading the history at one point, they were housed of prostitution. The nuns were nothing but uh, but uh, prostitutes, right. you know. Um, mm-hmm. And you could go on and on. And this is not uh, something that we wrote about the history of Christianity. These are Europeans writing about the history of Christianity, you know, and they have the... Uh, that show, and I think it still comes on TV, I only try to watch maybe one or two um, um, uh, shows and then became disinterested, but like the Borgias, you know, weren't mm-hmm. they, um, wasn't he a pope and yeah, his pope. children were all involved in all sorts of weird stuff? You yeah. know, so um, it's, it's been a problem for us. We really don't know what we're worshiping. You know, and the whole thing with, you know, the King James Version of the Bible and what we know about him and and his um, um, piccadillos. Um, mm-hmm. There's so much that we really uh, don't know. We've, we've accepted the information blindly, you know, and if, you, if that's what you want to do, that's fine, but at least know the history. And then don't get angry at people if they tell you, if they point out, you know, information about the history of Christianity, don't get angry, you know, uh, but unfortunately do. And so I'm not a fan, you know, and um, that doesn't um, win me uh, brownie points with my family, but some of them, you know, they're they're very much into the church and that sort of thing, and so I become an outcast because of my belief. Um, But it is what it is. Uh, it is what it is. You're right. I agree with you on that. There's a lot of things. We get into that. Like you said, there's a lot of things to dissect. I remember what well, brought to my mind was uh, when Pope Francis said something a couple of weeks ago about, I guess, Christians living double lives. And he was talking about you're a hypocrite if you live a double life as a Christian, if you're not Christ-like. And I'm thinking about the church being, y'all move around priests like it's a witness protection program. And uh, like you, you talk about the history of the nuns and stuff. They're like, man, how can people allow their kids to be in the possession of these people? Like, how can you have a billion followers when the people, the leadership in your church have been has been corrupted or compromised? How can people keep on continuing giving you more kids or sheep for the wolves to feed on? But uh, it's not, you know, but it's get back to um, what do you, we talking about this system, the religion of white supremacy, racism, and America believed in manifest destiny. White men believed it was their birthright to uh, to control and conquer North America. And, like, the biggest adversary to the Gullah Geechee people was Andrew Jackson. Can you tell us a little bit about who Andrew Jackson was and his role in his whole story? 
Yeah, the greatest nemesis of the Gullah Geechee people. Uh, he basically single-handedly took it upon himself to go and um, create all sorts of ruses to go in there and um, try and bring those people um, back to uh, their former enslavers, if they had former enslavers. Because some of the Gullah Geechee people had been living in Florida for hundreds of years, and they had never been enslaved. But so the ones that had ran away most recently, in terms of what Andrew Jackson knew, he wanted to bring not only them, he wanted to bring the people that had never been enslaved back to them. And he created, as I I was saying, he created all these um, artificial means of trying to bring them back. He would even sacrifice his own people, his own soldiers, to try and create um, uh, um, uh, conflicts so that he could justify going over there and bringing them back. For instance, uh, with the bombing of uh, what the um, Europeans called that Negro Fort, some people say that it was named Negro Fort. It was not named Negro Fort. The European people, angry that that fort existed over there, and there were um, melanated people who were in control of that uh, fort after the British left, they called it, in a disparaging way, that Negro fort. And so he wanted to go over there, Andrew Jackson, he thought of a way to go over there to try and, 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 um, and start war. So he had his men go into that area and make believe that they were going over there to, um, to get fresh water, to take, uh, put back one of their ships, when actually they went over there to cause a conflict. And he knew that the uh, melanated men who were in control of the, of, the, um, of the fort, he knew that they were going to fight back, and that's what he wanted them to do. He wanted, them, uh, he wanted his men to go over there and mess with the women and children, which they did. He knew that the melanated uh, men in control of the fort would be angry, which they were. And they went up there. Uh, when the men went over there, when the European men went over there, and started messing with the women and children and tried to rape them, rape the women as well as the children. He knew the men were going to get angry and kill up everybody, and they did. Mm. And then he acted like he was so incensed and hurt, and how could you do this when he orchestrated the whole entire thing, trying to make war. And he did that several times um, to try and get them uh, to... to, uh, uh, kill up his men so that he could justify going over there to start war. And basically that's how uh, the first um, uh, Belagichi war occurred because he went over there. He, he did this uh, actually um, three different times, going over there, um, sacrificing his own men, knowing that they were going to be killed, and then he could report back to uh, the newspapers in the United States about how horrible uh, the melanated men were, and they killed up everybody. They massacred everybody, and then used that as a means to um, uh, get the support of the European people to invade a sovereign, a so-called sovereign nation, and then go over there and fight. Uh, that's actually how the United States was able to take control of uh, Florida to begin with, because. Florida was a Spanish colony, and if it was actually if it was not for the Gullah Geechee uh, people, 
staying with the Lord's possession of uh, Florida, probably about uh, 10 years into their owning it. Uh, but um, it was the Gullah Geechee people who um, uh, helped them to maintain control over uh, Florida. And so um, uh, Florida, I mean, excuse me, so uh, the Spaniards, after a while, they realized, you know, we're not doing much here. Um, the Gullah Geechee people are the ones who are keeping this area afloat. They're the ones with all the commerce and this, that, and the other. Uh, we need to get out of here. And uh, I guess uh, the United States, the Europeans of the United States, sensed that um, the Spaniards were going to lose control over um, uh, Florida, and that's one of the, that's another reason why they went to war with the Gullah Geechee people to try and get them out of uh, Florida so that uh, the United States could, could take possession over Florida. But the Spaniards, they've never done anything. If you listen to uh, John Henry Clark, you know, he'll tell you about, you know, the conditions of Spain prior to the coming of uh, the Moors and uh, their condition um, since the Moors left um, Spain is not the greatest. Right now they're, they're, they're still struggling. You know, they've never been correct. Um, you know, but everything that they've done, uh, you would think that, you know, They've done that on their own, but their whole culture centers around uh, Moorish history or Moorish uh, uh, advancement, teaching them, you know, how to bathe, um, uh, planting the uh, crops from them, uh, building the schools there for them. You could go on and on. And then what did they do? You know, the whole thing. We don't even know much about that or not many people know about that. The whole thing about bullfighting, you know, that was their... um, uh, 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 what do you call it, a celebration of uh, throwing the Moors out of their country. That's what mm. bullfighting is all about, you know. Um, so uh, if it wasn't for the Bologici people and the Moorish people, um, the people of Spain would still be, you know, crawling on fours, and uh, I think they still eat raw meat. But <laughs> they're, they're, uh, the condition of the country uh, wouldn't be much different than um, uh, it was prior to uh, the Moors coming and civilizing them. Basically, that's what they did. They civilized them. You know, that's what the whole thing about the um, uh, the baths were, you know, the, the public baths, where they could go and um, clean their bodies because they didn't even know anything about bathing, you know. And then they took that particular... Um, uh, advancement and turned it into something dirty, you know, and then that's when they said, okay, we have to cut the uh, public baths out because they once went there just to bathe and then they started to go there and um, have sexual relations with one another. And that's mm. one of the reasons why they had to get rid of the public baths. Wow. It's funny, like, you know, it's like everywhere black people go, we have a civilized effect of where we go. And wherever white people go, so I can be a very like a destructive path. Uh, it's interesting, like it's like an opposite, you know, effect. But even like you, you were saying that I was thinking about America, how you know black people were here to open and brought over here to civilize America and give it its culture and you know its rich uh, heritage. I mean, I, I just think it's fascinating when you start connecting the dots that 
there's nothing new under the sun. Like, you know, everybody have a role to play in this uh in this thing called life. But I want to ask you as well, what does it take what would it take for you to be able to create this history that you talk about that you're passionate about into a live action movie, a feature length film? What what needs to be done? I need <laughs> I need a lot of money mm-hmm. to do it the way that it really needs to be done. And I'm not talking about Hollywood type of movie, but you know, five million dollars wouldn't be a bad idea to do it the way that I really think it needs to be done. Um, battle scenes, for instance, uh, during the the first Seminole War, so-called first Seminole War, which was the Gullah first Gullah Geechee War, there were over five major battles that were fought by these people. And so to try and bring that to the cinema, we're talking not only a lot in terms of the number of actors and extras that you need, but now we're talking about uh, insurance and all the other things that go along with uh, producing that type of, um, uh, of, uh, of those types of, of scenes. You know, I, I did a trailer, and I uh, went on Indiegogo to try and raise money. That wasn't very uh, – it, it wasn't helpful at all. I didn't get the type of response that I had hoped uh, to get. And um, one of the reasons even I think about this in my head over and over again about, you know, how could I have uh, done my trailers a little differently. Uh, but the problem was money. I didn't even have uh, the money that I needed. Uh, to do the trailers the way that I wanted. Also experience, this is my first screenplay, but it's a major one, and I think this is something that really, really needs to be told. But because of not having the money that I needed, I couldn't really do the trailers the way that I wanted to do. So I tried to focus in on uh, some of the things that I thought that might interest people. For instance, Andrew Jackson, the man was a degenerate. He was... um, sexual pervert and a degenerate. And so one of the trailers that I uh, I um, had uh, actors produce showed him as being this um, nasty individual who was messing with black women. He had loads of uh, children uh, who, were, um, uh, who, who were conceived uh, from um, melanated women on his plantation. And so I focused in on one of the uh, Negro bedwinches, and her name was Hannah. And I referred mm-hmm. her as being a Negro bedwinch because she wasn't nice to the other melanated people that were living on the plantation with her. Uh, she was a snitch. She would tell, uh, go back and run and tell Andrew Jackson and his wife and other Europeans exactly what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, she was having a sexual relationship with uh, Andrew Jackson, as well as other men that Andrew Jackson allowed to come onto his uh, plantation. And when she got ready to have sex with these men, she would bring them to her cabin and make her husband, Hannah, I mean, excuse me, her name was Hannah. She would make her husband, Aaron, leave the, plant, uh, leave the, um, the cabin so that he could have sex with her. And so, you know, I, I showed that particular... Um, um, I, that was one of my trailers. I don't mm-hmm. think people were too enthused about it, but um, I think of it as maybe not really wanting to see it because 
they want to think, maybe they want to think when the presidents, Thomas Jefferson, and the rest of the gang were having sex with uh, underage uh, melanated uh, girls, uh, that that was some sort, there was some sort of love involved, that they were, you know, uh, devoted to them. Uh, I don't know what it uh, what it is. I guess they wanted a scene like the the one in um, uh, Jefferson in Paris that was done a couple of years ago. Maybe they mm-hmm. wanted to see something like that. But mine, you know, as they say, was raw. Some people even said it was terrifying. It showed him not being very nice to to uh, Hannah, treating her like um, a slut, you know and not being very nice to her husband, emasculating her husband. And maybe they didn't want to see that. But I didn't make up that scene. All the information that I included with very little creative license came from um, the historical records of um, Andrew Jackson and his relationship with Hannah. For instance, he would get the black women to comb his hair and he would give them a, the, equivalent, the equivalent of a penny every time they combed his hair. You know, that was usually just prior having um, uh, sex with him. He would have them comb his hair. And that came right, right out of the, uh, you know, the pages of history. You know, so the information I included, I don't think people especially cared for that. And, you know, fighting against them, like I said, he was one of the greatest nemesis, and he got the other prior to him because becoming president of the United States. He got the other president uh, during that time uh, to go along with his scheme for trying to um, bring the Gullah people who had escaped, bringing them back here to the United States of America. You know, and that's something that I, you know, I also talk about him saying that he was going to Florida and deal with the nigger problem once and for all. But of course, we know that Andrew Jackson, he was unable to deal with the nigger problem. You know, mm-hmm. those melanated soldiers, they dealt with him. They sent his butt packing. Even mm-hmm. after the first Seminole War, uh, or the first Gullah War called the Seminole War, at the uh, conclusion of that war, he decided, eh, I mean, I better go pick on somebody my own, uh, you know, that, uh, my own side, someone I can deal with. So then he left from where the uh, Gullah Geechee people live and went over there and started messing with the uh, people of, uh, of uh, uh, the people of uh, the Spanish people who were living in Florida. And the, uh, if you started the Gullah Geechee Wars in 1860 with the bombing of uh, that Negro fort and you ended in 1818, it took another 17 years before the United States even contemplated going back to Florida to try and make war against those Gullah Geechee people again. And when they went back the second time, they were unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. 17 years later, in uh, 1835, they uh, went over there again to try and mess with the people, and they sent them um, running back to the United States. And they uh, defeated them. Uh, their defeat of the uh, uh, United States was even more massive than it had been in the first Gullah War. And even after that war, they were still not defeated, the, meaning the Gullah people weren't defeated. And the United States waited again until 1842 before they went back again to try and uh, to defeat them. 
and they still were not defeated. And as a matter of fact, they signed a treaty with uh, uh, the Gullah Geechee people. And to this day, the treaty that they signed with them, which is called the Article of Capitulation, is something that is very, very, you're not going to get your hands on. We know it's there. We know it was signed. But getting your hands on, you know, um, everyday citizens getting their hands on, including me, trying to get my hands on that particular document has been um, a tiring event. I've been trying for the longest to get my hands on the Articles of Capitulation that they signed with Abraham, who was one of the self-emancipated Africans who fought during the First and the Second Seminole War, or the First and Second Gullah War. And um, I have not been able to get my hands on the article of capitulation. Do you believe it still exists? I mean, is it still in existence? Oh, absolutely. It's probably sitting in someone's private collection, like a lot of our history is sitting. Or it could be, you know, uh, the the Vatican could have it, because they said most of the uh, the, uh, information uh, in the, uh, the library of the Vatican had to deal with uh, melanated people. I believe they said that the the library, it's an underground la- library, and it runs mm-hmm. about six miles underneath mm-hmm. the, um, the Vatican. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm sure there must be a, co- a copy there. It's not an original. I'm sure there's definitely a, cop- a copy of that a particular article there, or a treaty there, I should say. Now, let's say we we got access. Excuse me. But let's say we got access to this article. Do you think you can make a case for like uh, people of African descent getting reparations in this country? Would it, be, it make a strong case for that, or it doesn't make a difference? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know what were the terms of agreement? You know, and if you listen to Claude Anderson, for example, he talks about other treaties and other information that uh, we should have been included in in terms of reparation. That we're not, you know, and uh, 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 Barack Obama didn't help any. He was too busy helping other people to try and help us, mm. you know. But uh, he refused to recognize the, the treaties, you know. But you know that that's a case that could be made maybe in, um, uh, before the World Court, you know, something that um, the lawyer's name is, uh, you know, the. The lawyer with the OJ case that's now deceased. I can't I'm think of his name. Uh, right Johnny Cochran. Johnny Cochran, right? Mm-hmm. And some people say that's the reason uh, why he was he was murdered. Mm-hmm. It had nothing at all to do with uh, um, him winning the case with OJ Simpson. It had more to do with his bringing the um, uh, bringing reparations for melanated people in this country for the world court, and that's why he was uh, assassinated. Mm. Wow. wow. So how, what is the best way to find out more information about your project as well as to support it? How can we go about doing these things? I have a website, and uh, the name of the website is the, the Unconquered.movie. Mm-hmm. And you can go there, you can look at the trailers, and you can uh, read the information about you know, the commentaries on the trailers. You can also go there and buy a T-shirt. Um, I, have a, I have a book for sale that I think is an important book. Some people think it's not. A book of African-American names and their meanings. Uh, you can go there. Or you can just go there and just um, uh, donate 
to having um, uh, the movie made, and no amount is too small of an amount. Let's say if I could get a million people to give a dollar each, um, mm-hmm. that money would go a long way. You know, so you don't have to go over there and make this, you know, um, exorbitant uh, amount uh, or consider this exorbitant amount. Every little bit helps. You know, I was reading something. I don't know who, who it's by. I'm trying to think of it now. Oh, Tecumseh, I believe it is. And mm-hmm. he's someone else that I mentioned in my, um, in, in, in um, who else is in the movie? And I mentioned about him. And he's uh, putting a curse on all the presidents of the United States. And that curse is still going. But he said uh, one twig, one small twig will break. But if you put together many twigs, they're not going to break. So if we can think ourselves as just being twigs that we can all put together, we can make something very strong. You know, and there's so many other stories that need to be told that we don't know about who we are. And this could be the start of that. You know, a lot of the people or, or a lot of the movies that we see on TV are uh, European people acting out our history. Even some of the uh, the fairy tales, like um, um, uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, you know, that's supposedly um, a story that comes out of uh, ancient Timid. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so much that if we, you know, if, if supporting me would give other people uh, the ability to say, wow, she got the support, maybe they'll support me, and I can tell them the story about this. I can tell the story about that because there's so much about our, uh, our history uh, that needs to be told. And uh, this could be a way to, to start that, um, um, that process, you know, and, and making people see I can do that, I can be successful. Because right now people, I think, are a little afraid to do anything um, to try and um, uh, tell our story because they're wondering whether or not they're going to get the and they know they need the support. Definitely, most definitely. Uh, everything you said is definitely on my on point. And I, I'm curious because uh, you talk about your movie, you talk about this the other day as well. I was curious, who would you get to play Abraham? Who would be the ideal person to play Abraham? Mm. Uh, I... Uh, I don't know. I guess it would have to be uh, a gentleman about 40 years old because Abraham, he was uh, in his late 30s uh, mm-hmm. when he uh, went to battle against the United States. Um, I'm not so good with names right about now, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, uh, and, and and who can, you know, who could really the part because I'm um, I don't go to movies that much unfortunately because I don't see much of what I, I want to see in terms of what we're doing mm-hmm. but you know uh, just a nice um, um, actor <laughs> I, yeah. I I really don't know you know now I have other characters and I thought about maybe some of them and who would play that role mm-hmm. um, and I can't even think of any names right now, and I know there's a whole thing now where people are a little upset because they, they're saying that uh, most of the people that are playing in um, uh, the movies nowadays, they're not from America at all. I think it right. was, uh, um, I can't remember who it was. 
that said that he was upset about that. Oh, Samuel um, Jackson? Was it Samuel Jackson? Yes, yeah, Samuel Jackson, right. He mm-hmm. said most of them are, are British actors. Now I'm seeing things going with having British actors or, you know, African actors for that much, or for that, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. for those parts. But what about the um, melanated people from this country? How come they can't play those roles? You know, or yeah. is it something that they believe that uh, they're not going to answer the questions or they're not familiar with the history, so they, don't, they wouldn't even know the history to ask about what's going on in this country? I don't know, really know what that's about. You know, again, I'm not opposed to them acting. Even the young man that plays in Get Out, right. uh, Daniel uh, Kayulia, um, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about, yeah. Yeah. Right, they're saying that he's mm-hmm. from uh, Britain as well, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, I'm not knocking them and they should be able to work. But as you know, Samuel L. Jackson said, but couldn't they get someone uh, from here? Well, I would raise the question to Samuel Jackson and other people like him, support people like you, to get those roles, to manifest those roles. Why not support people like you? You know, right. you know, to help you benefit these roles for these people. Cause I, I just think that it's weird that I hear about black actresses, actors, and stuff complaining about Hollywood, but Hollywood wasn't made for you. It was made for them, and, and they had a you know agenda. And like to me, like you know, uh, regardless of what you feel about Tyler Perry, I respect his business model, where he actually built his own studio. And he took care of his right. people. But yeah, he had to sacrifice stuff in order to do that. And I'm saying with Sam Jack, right. if people like him, why not you know, invest in people like you? You provided these screenplays and these roles for people to play, for them to take pride in their history. Like, even with Spike Lee, if you look at the history of Malcolm X movie, like Malcolm X movie, the, the movie rights was brought, I believe, back in 1972 by Marvin Worth from Betty Shabazz, Malcolm X Widow. It took him almost 20 years to make that movie, Malcolm X. You know what I'm saying? It took him a while. Even James Baldwin at one point was, uh, you know, picked and tried to make a movie about Malcolm X, or he was campaigning for it. But um, even when Spike Lee got the approval of the studio, he still had to raise the money from people like uh, Bill Cosby or Michael Jordan or Oprah Winfrey. He still had to raise money from other folks. They, they had, he went to the black celebrity community to get the money to complete Malcolm X. Had he not did right. that, we might never had a movie about Malcolm X, a feature movie about Malcolm, That's because right. the white folks didn't want to put the money behind it. They didn't want to put the budget right. behind it, but they always put the money behind stuff to lose money in Hollywood. You know, so, but then, you know, I, it's kind of interesting uh, when people complain. I, I, I like Samuel Jackson, I do, uh, but it's, it's really interesting when people complain about opportunities in a system that don't even acknowledge your humanity as a black person. That's true. You're absolutely right. And, you know, I've contacted a lot of the people, you know, that mm-hmm. are making movies or could, you know, be helpful to me. You know, we have a conversation or something. But, you know, I can't get anyone uh, to uh, talk to me. Or as uh, at this point, I haven't been able to get any of them. Maybe they will. Maybe here and this they will. Like, I, I'd love to use Tyler Perry as one of his studios. You know, to build, mm-hmm. build the set, you mm-hmm. know, 
or my movie. Are you hearing? Because I've already contacted him. Are you hearing me, Tyler Perry? That would be very nice. <laughs> we'll so, tag him in. Um, we'll get out there. You'd be surprised, though. You'd be surprised. Like you said, this technology is powerful. I remember uh, I talked to Dick Gregory. He was telling me, like, you know, he had did a thing. Well, I guess well, Eddie Merchant was honored for the Kennedy Center honors, the Mark Twain Prize, like uh, back in, I believe, 2015. And he said, man, Eddie Murphy said he listened to like six hours of our interviews we did. Uh, that being Dick, yeah, you know, he listened to it. And I didn't know how Eddie Murphy was listening to what I was doing. And, uh, you know, you don't know. You just don't know what type of impact you're making. But, yeah, put this out there because, like, what we don't understand, it's like almost 35,000 black millionaires in this country. The majority of those people made their money not by playing sports or singing for white people. They made their money through investments and behind the scenes. If you could reach, like, a couple of those 35,000 black millionaires out there. It's like, for example, there's a guy that gave uh, $20 million to the black museum they built, the African-American History Museum that the Smithsonian built in D.C. He gave as much money as Oprah to build that museum, but a lot of us don't know who he is. I believe his name is Robert Smith. I believe that's his name. But he's a multi-billionaire. And he's not on everybody's uh, television every night, you know, performing or entertaining folks. He made his money in a, in a different way. He invested. He did it, did it the Wall Street way. So anyway, uh, there's people out there that's looking to put something right. behind something. And a lot of times people are so afraid, like these celebrities are so afraid to lock the boat. That's why you know they're not really powerful like that because they're too afraid to speak their mind. Everybody can't be like Nick Cannon, you know, walking away from millions of dollars because on principle alone, he said, you ain't going to make me your slave. You know, but a lot of folks, don't mind, you know, playing that role. You know, right. a lot of folks don't mind being that bad winch or that cone, whatever people want to call people that. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I contacted Nick Cannon, too. Hey, give me a call, Nick Cannon. <laughs> oh, well, he, may, he might give you a call. You never know. He yeah. might be, he's, not, he's not even going to talk to dudes that really want to help people. Like, he has a lot of people behind the scenes. And uh, right. if you're getting right, a lot of times when we try to connect with these celebrities, they still got these firewalls up, all these assistants, and people think they're doing them a favor by not connecting them with certain people. Right. And a lot of times when you meet them one-on-one, they might not be what you think they are. They might, you know, be very generous and kind, but, you know, you got to think about it. In that position, you got so many people reaching out to you, uh, trying to deal with you. And you got a lot of folks blocking people from getting to certain people. But I bet you if you yeah. keep getting along with these people, one of those people out of that, out of that group you get with, like, you know, I'm coming to these millionaires and celebrities, I bet you one or two or three would support what you're doing. Right. You know, and I'm not just doing this for myself or just my, uh, my family. I'm doing this for all of us. I'm bringing a story that needs to be told. Mm-hmm. We need to know about our history. Right. Know, the things that we did that mm-hmm. no one else is talking about, the things that nobody wants uh, us to hear about that will make you proud, that will make you look at yourself and your 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 children a little differently in my in my estimation any, anyway. Some of people say could say, ah, he's one of those movies though about war, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's something we need to know we need to know before that. We need to know that we were thriving. You know. I think it's just extremely, extremely important that we hear this. That we don't leave the movie because a lot of people when they leave the movie and they see another black man being hung or another mm-hmm. woman uh, being beat like in 12 years a slave when um, the, 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 the young enslaved woman was, was beaten to a pulp. 
You know, how how are you supposed to feel when you see that sort of stuff? You know, does it make you leave and want to go home and create? Or does it make you feel so crestfallen? The only thing that you can do is maybe go and get something to eat and then go to sleep. You know, um, I know I don't want to see anything uh, anymore, that type of um, um, movie any longer. I'm sure there are a lot of other people out there. And this would be the way to start that. You know, where we see something of this, this story is of epic proportions, and we need to know about it. We need to see it. We need to be proud and go to the movie and, you know, say, wow, this is us. This is what we did, and we did it once, and we can do it again. We're talking about economics now and, you know, being gentrified and, you know, having everything that we, we have taken away from us. This might be the thing that we need to help and bring stuff back to us. Well, we can say we did it before and we can do it again. Mm-hmm. You know, we're showing people with dignity and pride, you know, who were who were fantastic uh, businessmen. You think of in the 18th and the 19th century, these people were um, noted all around the world for their uh, uh, ability to... Um, uh, 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 to grow things that everybody wanted. It was of su- superior quality. These are people who had fled their enslavers. Some of, many of them had fled their enslavers. And within uh, years of fleeing, they were able to build these, um, these settlements that nobody's uh, telling you about, the stuff that you see on, on um, uh, what do you call it, um, Many of these internet uh, searches where they show these little beat-up cabins and that sort of stuff, that's not it at all. These mm-hmm. people were out here and they would build. Some of the, uh, the, uh, the buildings that they were erected were two stories uh, tall. But when mm-hmm. you see um, these uh, 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 pictures on, you know, if you go into uh, uh, do a Google search, they'll show these little huts with uh, with um uh, thatch roofs and, and that sort of stuff on top of it, they're not mm-hmm. telling you the truth, you know? So we need to uh, see what our history really was as opposed to what it is that they've been telling us our history was. And this movie could be the start to do that. I'm not going to say it's the end-all, be-all, but it's definitely a start. Mm-hmm. And start we must. So I want to thank you, sister, how do you pronounce your name, and what is the origin of your name? I know you said you told us a little bit about your last name, but what is the origin, and how do you properly pronounce your name? Right. My name is Talagbe, and that's a Yoruba name, and it means one who uplifts riches and wealth. And, of course, Ogunleye, as I, as I said, means he who comes to make war, or she who comes to make war, and that's also a Yoruba name. And um, my husband is Yoruba, and that's how I got the name. Uh, or names. Uh, as I said, I'm from New York, but I'm a, a Geechee Yamasi woman, mm-hmm. a proud Geechee Yamasi Moorish woman, and uh, that's my name. Brother, what's in the name? There you see it. Names are very powerful. Like I told you about your words create world. So you definitely are a conqueror, you definitely are an emancipator, and you definitely are of the people. So Dr. Talagbe, I want to thank you so much uh, for being on our show, for honoring our platform. And I also thank you for this wonderful shirt you gave me. It's one of my favorite shirts now. I mean, hey, oh, this shirt is, I get a lot of compliments on the shirt. People are like, oh, 
I mean, they're fascinating. I had this one white woman who's uh, trained to be a professor. She's a, a doctoral candidate at uh, University of Memphis. And she was so uh, hypnotized by your shirt because uh, she's really into African culture and black history and all that stuff. So she was very taken aback by the shirt and by the quote on the back of the shirt. And oh, I, I thank was, you. That's, yeah, go ahead. I'm not going to say that's Abraham's quote. Wow. But it lets you know. And that was a powerful quote, God. It lets you know, too. I always tell people, I was in a church last week uh, promoting the project I'm a part of, and I, I was at the pulpit of all places. And I told the people, I said, you know the real Holy Trinity is the black man, woman, the child. We are the Holy Trinity. Not this right. other stuff. We are the real one. Until we understand that, until we understand that, we'll never get anywhere because it takes us working together to get what we need, you know. So I want to thank you once again, Dr. Pelegri. In the words of Great Together, we love you madly. Keep on producing and pushing. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me on your show. I was an honor, man. The time was about too fast. I might have you back on again very soon. Never know. Okay. I'd, I'd love to come back. That's excellent. All right. Take care. Okay. You take care, too. And thank you again. Yes, ma'am. No problem. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.